I'm Ted Seides, and this is Private Equity Deals. Middle market businesses are where the real action takes place. Around 200,000 businesses in the United States fall into the middle market size range, generally defined as generating revenue between $25 million and a billion dollars. These businesses collectively employ 50 million people, or almost a third of the U.S. workforce, and represent two-thirds of total U.S. private equity deal value. Big deals may grab the big headlines, but a lot of action in the economy and private equity industry takes place in the universe of middle market businesses. Season one of Private Equity Deals shared deals from eight well-known GPs. In season two, we discussed eight well-known companies bought by private equity firms. We can't begin to cover the massive middle market in just eight deals, but in season three, you'll get a tiny sliver of what the middle market is all about. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinions of capital allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Clients of capital allocators or guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. On episode three of season three of Private Equity Deals, Michael Fish discusses Milk Specialties Global. Michael is the founder and CEO of American Securities, a private equity firm founded in 1994 that manages $20 billion focusing on U.S. middle market companies. Milk Specialties is a producer of dairy products for the health and wellness, sports, and functional food industries. With roots dating back to 1944, the company focuses on whey products and ingredients that end up in recognizable brands. Our conversation covers American Securities' approach to investing, Milk Specialties' market niche, and the diligence and deal process. We turn to the game plan for the business alongside existing management, growth drivers, and risk mitigation. We then go full circle discussing the sale process to exit the investment, covering the timing, auction, and case against continuation funds. Please enjoy my conversation with Michael Fish. Michael, great to see you. Great to be with you, Ted. Why don't we start with an elevator pitch overview on American Securities? I founded the business alongside a family office in 1994 that bore the same name, and we have about $20 billion of committed capital now across eight private equity funds focused on the upper middle market for U.S.-based companies. All of the companies we've purchased, some 70 to 80 now in our 30 years, are U.S. headquartered. We have very, very low turnover and a very senior team, 23 managing directors with an average tenure with us of 13 years. And in addition to the classic investment team, which would be 49 people if you counted me, 48 if I count for nothing, we have a resources group, which is now 58 full-time professionals who helps drive value creation. And we've been refining, continuing, growing this team now for over 20 years. Functional experts, purchasing, procurement, an office in Shanghai, China. So we have insights on Asia-Pacific operations and strategy. How would you describe your investing style and your sweet spot? Our sweet spot is the number one market share company in its niche, typically 100 to $150 million of existing EBITDA. So these are very established companies. 60% in our history have been industrial companies and the rest are consumer services and healthcare services. So let's dive into Milk Specialties. What is this company? Milk Specialties is a fascinating, wonderful business. 
The name Milk Specialties may not be known to most consumers, but the products it supplies, primarily whey, protein, go into scores of products. Kodiak, Quest Nutrition, Premier Protein, Post, Optimum would be some of the brand names. We bought the company in August of 2016, and it was a leading producer and supplier of these value-added ingredients for both human and animal protein, and had a leading market position. Who owned the company before you got involved? It was owned by another private equity firm. They had actually signed a deal to sell it to a China-based company, and that deal fell apart. We knew the bankers well, and they know how we think about deals and investments. They called us, and we quickly looked at the company, looked at its CEO and management team, particularly Dave Lensmeyer, terrific entrepreneurial CEO. We were uh, gratified that he wanted to partner with us, and we wanted to partner with him, and so we quickly became the preferred buyer and got a shot to buy the company. What was your diligence process like after that broken deal? We are always looking for an industry tailwind to invest behind because it's kind of a blinding flash of the obvious, right? If you're buying the market-leading company and the market is growing, you should do well for investors. Maybe not always amazingly, but you should do well and return capital. So here, we did a lot of work on their network. So they gather their whey protein from cheese manufacturers. Whey is like a byproduct of their processing. And so Milk Specialties had a network to continue to get that excess whey protein from these cheese manufacturers who literally would otherwise throw it away, landfill it. And that is a very infinitely expandable supply base, which has some structural issues about cyclicality of the price of milk, for example, and whey protein is derivative of that, which had to be worked through, but we had an idea about that. We also saw this tailwind of whey protein. You could see that it was growing global consumption for whey protein. And when we were looking at the business, a very significant part of it was for animals. The company MSG has a product which is the best nutritional source for producing more milk from cows. And so that was a very important part of the business. But the human nutrition part, we saw a very significant global tailwind we were investing behind. As I said, a proprietary gathering position for this whey protein. Some ways to turn being a commodity supplier into more a specialty supplier with higher quality products and more customer stickiness through an investment in Coman, which is another trend that was existing, which attracted us to the business notionally. We did a lot of due diligence with our resources group, with outside consultants, with our China office colleagues to validate those potential growth opportunities and strategies. How'd you get comfortable with that cyclicality of milk consumption? It's a tough one. So in this situation, because we were the biggest gatherer literally going to pick up this byproduct of cheese manufacturing, we believed that we could over time effectively convert contracts to being spot-based, to being margin protecting. So our margin was protected in the first instance, no matter what the price was. And that price fluctuation would be borne by the cheese manufacturers, our raw material suppliers, as opposed to something the company was taken. And we largely succeeded in that. Why were you able to get the market power in that discussion with manufacturers to go from bearing the risk to having them bear that risk? We just explained the economics were hard for us. And we were going to prioritize people who would margin protect us so we could 
pay for the trucks, have the trucks pay for the drivers and actually be a reliable person because you don't get there fast enough. You got to landfill it. You got a limited number of literally hours before that excess is going to go away. And so the company's proprietary sourcing of raw material, which we had due diligence a lot, gave us the ability to restructure contracts. And it's not entirely bad for our customers that we're picking this up from, right? They get the ups and the downs. We just wanted more stability. What were some of the issues or concerns you had going into the deal from your diligence? Well, this was a big one, this trend of the volatility, just smoothing out the volatility in basic dairy prices and immunizing from that. That was the biggest worry. We knew we had a great management team. We knew we had long-term growth tailwinds and all the other stuff we saw was primarily upside. And in the animal nutrition side, we knew we had the best product. It was a premium price product, but its performance was terrific. Again, a little impacted when milk prices went down because if milk prices went down, the value of producing more milk and paying more for the nutritional source for your cows to have that is not as great as when prices are high. So again, this was an opportunity. The more we could build the human nutrition side and do some other things with that to entrench ourselves with customers and grow that business, the better we thought our investors would do. But that was generally considered upside. How did you get comfortable with whatever issues caused the deal to break before it came to you? We don't worry about that so much. In the same way, we don't worry about who the seller is. By the way, in our most recent partnerships, seven of our 15 investment are founder, CEO owned and managed businesses. They're choosing to partner with us. Some of these things about our team and the resources group, but whether we're going to be first time private equity from a family seller, whether we're buying from another private equity firm, whether it's a corporate divestiture, it's almost our job is to put blinders on. We're looking at it the way we look at it in a consistent process with a consistent lens and resources to see, do we see value? Do we see stability? When we look at a business, that someone looked at it. Yes, yes, we asked the question, okay, what's the happen? What's, what's the buyer? Is there a learning there? But it doesn't really matter. Our diligence matters more. And here it was pretty easy for a bunch of reasons to see why this Asian buyer had trouble coming up with the capital and we would be a better partner. The key is avoid all those exogenous factors and just do your process. There's so many investments out there. We typically see in robust times as many as 450 potential investments, U.S. headquartered companies, plus or minus our size range every year. How do you get comfortable with the potential for asymmetric information, particularly in situations where it's the founder-led business that they're choosing to sell? A, you got to do your work. That's why they call it due diligence factor. We talked about the Buffett story of the horse. The, the short version is man's got a horse. It's lame. He takes it to the vet. He says, what should I do? And the vet says, sell it. And he says, but it's lame. He says, well, wait a few weeks till it's not and then sell it. <laughs> Meaning you got to know what you're buying. And so taking due diligence very seriously. And again, this is why we're advantaged. We like to think we only invest in U.S. headquarter businesses we live here, we know the people, we know the laws, we know the language. There should be someone in Buenos Aires and Beijing and Berlin who's like us. Let them buy those companies. We're focused here in the US. And so you need those networks and you need experience in the industries. You know, We're very focused on industrials with some consumer services and healthcare services. As I said, you want to know what you're doing and you got to do the work yourself because we're investing on behalf of institutions 
and really having lenders come with us, another form of institutional who's investing in our deal, just a debt security versus equity. That's our job and we got to do that well. But again, our partnership model with management teams often ferrets out those information asymmetries. In our experience, sometimes we learn things where there's more upside than we thought. And those, not surprisingly, tend to be the deals we're closing on more than the others where we don't learn an asymmetric upside or opportunity and are able to validate it and verify it. What was the dynamics of the deal from when you did your diligence to closing on the transaction? They were pretty straightforward. You know, our purchase price was $830 million. We paid 7.2 times their actual LTM EBITDA. We had almost $500 million of debt financing and put up almost $400 million of equity. Dave Lensmeyer, the CEO and his management team, all rolled over equity, completely believed in their abilities, their market position, and the business opportunity. So as is often the case, and, and we try to make be the case, is be a no-drama purchaser. If we've done our work and we say we're going to buy it, we're going to buy it, absent some manifest material adverse change. And uh, this was very standard situation for us. So you had the management team in place. What was your game plan to take the business to the next level over and above what the prior owner had done? What Dave saw in us was bringing this industrial lens so that there were some things that we were willing to invest in and could see and help with. And with our resources group and our China office, he thought we could bring a lot of things to it. And of course, we are pretty well capitalized, so we could invest and wanted to invest in growth. And that was very exciting to him. So we leveraged the work of our resources group, particularly China, to expand international markets, tapping into new demand outlets during a time of soft domestic demand. That was a big deal. Our ingredient margin from international markets grew four times during our ownership. And we had 30% growth in our ownership period from 2016 to 2022. And they were capital investments. We created 58 million of EBITDA from a $56 million capital investments in some new related products. We de-risked the commodity exposure, as I said, getting suppliers to absorb the fluctuations so we could have a more stable margin. And we did a lot of work around efficiency and quality. And so there were things we could do to make modest capital expenditures or operational changes, which improve the quality. And that's really important, to, obviously, to consumer product companies, not just is it, is it stale or poisonous, none of that stuff, but just the purity and the taste and how it impacts and brought a consumer orientation to this industrial business and diversified our product formats. So they were almost entirely powder in protein jugs. That's what they sold when we showed up and we diversified across protein bars, beverages, other formats like chips, pretzels, confectionery, all of the ways where people are now consuming whey protein for health and other nutritional benefits. As you expanded that product line, how do you think about the buy versus build decision? We think about that all the time. When we're looking at buying a company or investing on behalf of a portfolio company, should we do it ourselves, build it, versus buy it and what's the cost benefit analysis. Here, we did a bit of both. There were some things we could do to diversify the product manufacturing and do that more cost effectively than others. And there's other situations where you can get real benefits from buying something. So in August of 21, we bought almost 100,000 square feet of a gluten-free K processing facility in Clara City, Minnesota. And that also brought some brands 
And in other situations, we made process improvements or introduced different forms of protein and we're able to sell those. This also brought us a lot of co-manufacturing. This is a big trend because a lot of consumer product companies want to control the brand and the formulation, but they want someone else to make it for them. So as we become the co-manufacturer, that provides stickiness for our whey protein. And so one way to look at what all this acquisition and build from within did is we made our co-man our number one customer for our company. And we control the co-man business, but that is very, very sticky. Now you don't have consumer product company bidding your whey protein against someone else's. You are their manufacturer. And so you have a significant say and efficiencies in using your own whey. And how did you think about that co-manager as an independent business and the potential to be a scale contract manufacturer? That's effectively what we created, moving up the food chain, if you will, from just supplying a commodity product, which is what the company was when we saw it largely, to having supplying and packaging the product for the consumer product company, where now you're an important partner in that and you have great efficiencies and scale and much more customer stickiness, which, which they enjoyed. They had pretty good customer stickiness. Again, Dave and his management team were terrific. But with the Coman business, we opened a whole new set of customer relationships and they were sticky too. What were some of the biggest challenges over the seven years of your ownership? You always worried about one big cheese manufacturer affecting the market in some way, but it really didn't come to pass. You had this historic cyclicality in milk prices and the resulting cascading impact on related dairy products, including whey protein. And insulating that, avoiding that was the big macro worry challenge opportunity. But we didn't have desperately bad things happen in our ownership period. And in fact, we went through a repricing of the debt, made 5 million more a year in savings in February of 2017. And then in June of 21, we actually raised incremental debt because the strategies had worked. What happened with the way pricing after you had moved it from absorbing the cyclical risk to a spread-based return stream? It moved around. But again, we successfully insulated ourselves from the negative aspects of it moving around and had perfectly fine margins and didn't mind when it bounced the other way a little bit and our suppliers made more money. That's what actually happens in a perfect world. We had more stability and generally growing EBITDA because the other strategies were creating more volume, more push through, more customer demand, and a better, more resilient company. So it's generally good. As you map this out in your original model for the business, how different did the results pan out from what you originally anticipated? I like to say you want to have judgment in private equity because you can bet with 95 plus percent certainty your model is going to be wrong. <laughs> As you're saying, it might be up, it may be down, but it's going to be wrong. Here, there's that variation along a trend, but we were pretty much on the trend and really outperformed, I believe, on some of the growth things that we brought and the acquisition that I talked about and what that brought. So the base case was largely achieved plus or minus, you know, in an imperfect way, but over a bunch of years, yes. And then outperformance to some extent from the strategic initiatives that we and the management team worked on. How do you think about when to exit the business? That's one of those arts more than science. There's a lot of ways to look at it. One is when you come into a business with a management team and form a new partnership, we always 
after closing, go off site right away with the management team and undertake what we call a shared vision process. And here I think about the milk specialty shared vision process every day because the swag giveaway to all the management teams and to us was a black nondescript backpack that really expands, has lots of pockets. And it's been my briefcase ever since that retreat. I love it so much. Actually, I bought a second one when the first one died of overuse and being <laughs> loved too much. When you get together on these shared visions, we go offsite with the manager team and if nothing happens, but we know each other better, we think that's going to lead to a better outcome because you're going to talk more and just demystifying management from private equity for each other. But if you only do that, it's an inefficient use of time. So we also always bring in our actual due diligence resources. If we've hired an external consulting firm, a Bain, a McKinsey, a BCG, a specialty firm, we actually have them come and present to management because we want management to know everything we know because they're making decisions all the time and we should have the same base of information. And as we say to management teams, look, we're not sure everything the consulting firm did is right. You shouldn't think it's gospel, but you should know what it is and we should figure it out. And then we have a plan and then we're going to execute that plan. And then when you've done that, you have a question, which is what opportunities now exist? If we're the new investor without selling, what are we going to do in the next three to five years? It's going to be as cool and wonderful as hopefully the last three to five years were. Or you say, hey, people are getting older. Management has significant options in the business. They're a single entity, overweighted investor, if you will. And they have legitimate needs for college tuitions and other things, retirement planning. And they think, hey, it would be great to take money off the table and you start exploring things. We are always a portfolio investor. Each partnership now typically has 15 plus or minus companies in it. So our investors in that partnership are not dependent on one and they're themselves large investors. But the management team is very concentrated. In our experience, companies doing well is a catalyst toward thinking about something. And here, you know, management had been in this business a long time. Dave and other management team members had 25 to 35 years experience in the industry. And it made sense to consider an exit here. And I'd say this is a backdrop now in private equity generally. When exits are hard to come by, people don't have many companies, as many as they did before, certainly that are saleable at a profit in the new environment with higher interest rates, lower debt, discerning sets of buyers. We signed a contract to sell it in December of 22, and it closed in early February of this year. As you started to think about that process, there's a lot of different mechanisms, right? You could do as you did, sell the financial sponsor. There's now continuation funds, other ways of holding an asset like this that's performing well. How did you sort through the decision to exit fully from the business? We tend to view ourselves as always being invested to build the business. I like to say we have never, ever thought of turning down a capital expenditure request or doing a riff or cutting working capital in advance of a sale. We always want to think we own the business and we're trying to build good to great or great to greater with every investment as long as we're in it. So we're always looking to build and grow. Our holding periods typically are about five plus or minus years, just like most other private equity firms. But our mentality is much longer term. We have never sold to a continuation vehicle. Those are obviously interesting strategies become out of nowhere, really a interesting way to sculpt a track record to in some cases hold on to an asset. But as uh, the SEC is writing about, they do create some conflicts and we've just 
stayed away from those so far for whatever reason. We did not consider that here. I like to say deciding to explore an exit is deciding to take time from management in particular, but also internal resources to think about it. The last decision you make is actually signing a contract to exit. And just like when you're buying, the last decision you make is signing the contract to purchase. In between, you're just spending time and money. How did you work through the process? It was pretty traditional, although in keeping with the market we live in, it had its interesting points. So, you know, we always go hire an investment banker to provide objectivity and resources and expertise in every exit strategy, almost always. Sometimes we sell it ourselves. Here we hired an intermediary advisor. They contacted a bunch of people. A bunch of people were interested, in this case, strategics and financial. Over the course of the process, one financial buyer emerged as particularly knowledgeable, particularly advantaged, and bringing some new things to the party, which enabled them to think, just as we did, they had a really great risk-reduced high upside opportunity because of some things they brought, particularly one big customer and a way to use a lot of the capacities we'd built. With that party, we proceeded in a pretty organized path toward signing a contract and then closing. The times we live in and the financing uncertainty and the scale of this financial buyer meant that we had to be a little bit flexible and a little bit creative. So we actually agreed to stay in as an investor because we love Dave and we love the business for a relatively significant amount of the equity initially, but giving them the option to take over that equity commitment or fund that equity prior to closing and even after closing. And so that allowed the deal to get signed at, we think, very favorable terms in a very tumultuous period. We actually signed it up the day before Christmas Eve day. And it closed February 6th, which was, you know, as fast as you could, basically with Hartscott waiting period. But that flexibility and being willing to roll the equity, believing in the management team, and then actually not having to, as they were able to explain, and we sometimes helped to potential co-investors, which they brought in, why this was a great business to invest in. As you go through the process, how do you balance wanting to just maximize price on your exit with finding what feels like the right buyer of the business? I think they're extremely synergistic. So we have a fiduciary duty, of course, to act in the best interest of every fund. And so we're always looking to maximize value. But finding the right buyer who has those opportunities to bring a customer, to bring synergies if it's a corporate buyer, that is consistent with getting the right price. And so we are pretty strategic about that now when we didn't have a lot of people and we first set up the firm 20, 30 years ago, we used to think we're just going to focus on growing EBITDA because if we grow EBITDA, only good things happen. We're not thinking about exit because that's three to five years away and we're not smart enough to know what's going to happen in three to five weeks. So let's just focus on building exit rather than market forces. Now that we're more people, more evolved, when we close a new investment, we are already thinking about who else might have looked at this business, not only financial, but importantly strategic? What did they like? What did they not like? Call them up and get a real sense of what potential strategic buyers think about the business, not as a certain roadmap of what we're going to do with a potential investment, but to be aware of it. So as we're making decisions over the next months and years, we're making decisions which might be extra super appealing to a synergistic strategic buyer 
and not off-putting and try to be very aware of that and keep up a dialogue with industry participants. And that is an evolution in how we think about exit. When we, we understand that we will be medium-term owners for a business by definition. That's the nature of private equity, unless you're doing continuation vehicles or selling it from one fund to the other. And that, as I think, made us a more interesting acquisition target in certain situations for strategic buyers. How did you work through the different rounds of the process to actually get to the price and agreement to sell? Every courtship, every meal at a restaurant, every repeating process is always a little bit different, but it has a formula. So this really had the typical formula. As I said, we spent a lot of time with the management team thinking, do we want to spend the time pursuing a potential exit or do we not? Pros and cons, upside, downsides, hold, alternatives, motivations, timelines. We decided we did. We interviewed a bunch of bankers, picked what we thought was one of the best bankers to do this. They went out to potential financial and strategic buyers, as I said. Those conversations happen in various ways, shapes, or form. At some point, you ask for an initial indication of interest of those that are the higher. You let them do a little more work, have management presentations, do some due diligence, and then narrow it down to a smaller group, which, as I said, from this process, this one group emerged. And so you kind of say, hey, if you can do these things, we will sign a deal in this way, in this time frame, And plus or minus, that proceeded very amicably and professionally toward a signing of a contract. So you mentioned that you've never put anything into a continuation fund, and that's certainly a trend in the industry. I'd love to hear your thoughts as to why you've chosen that path. One big reason is we don't mind being a longer-term holder in the current vehicle we're in. For me personally, it's a little bit uncomfortable to think about selling it, but not really selling it. Do investors get the M&A premium or do they not? Do investors feel that it was a full, robust auction process, if you will, to get to the highest price? Or is it a limited number of special friends of the existing GP? And then you're, you're ultimately deviating from one of the great alignment of interest points for private equity over other forms of investing. You put money up alongside your limited partners when you make an investment. And when you exit, the limited partner says, here's the exit. And it's very clear. And the GP takes a carried interest at exit and the LP takes the rest. And it's clean. In these continuation vehicles, it gets murky because there's another bite at the apple for the GP the LP isn't always getting liquidity, but may have an extra layer of expenses. There's just a whole bunch of new contractual obligations need to be worked through. And we've just never had to do that and are not unhappy that we never had to have those conversations. But I recognize it works for other people, GPs and LPs alike. There's no judgment here. We just haven't engaged in that or really wanted to. As you look at this milk specialties example as something that's just worked and it sounds like worked in almost a traditional private equity way, right? Buy a business well with a good management team, put the appropriate capital structure on, grow, sell. That is what we try to do relentlessly. And on the good management team point, you know, we have an 80 plus percent, I call it CEO win rate. So 80% of our CEOs that were there when we bought it 
before us, not we brought them in at closing, but they were there when we bought it, were with us at exit, or are with us today, absent a small number of ordinary course retirements, which doesn't mean we said time to retire. And that probably leads private equity, to be honest. Someone did a study a few years ago that 25% of CEOs are typically gone at closing. Two years later, it's 50% and only 25% survive over four years. So this 80% CEO win rate, we're very proud of. And so the formula you described, we are always trying to hit singles and doubles and take a low risk approach. And we think buying the market leading company with the number one market share in US headquartered businesses of this scale, 100 to 150 million. So they're big enough to recruit great people, to replace people who may leave or have a health problem, but not so big that they're world-class in everything they're doing, there's opportunities. That should be a relatively low risk way to approach private equity. And and for us, it, it has been. Milk Specialties is a steady formula that has worked for us. Again, that doesn't hit massive home runs, but doesn't strike out. What do you think it is about your assessment of the management teams that's allowed you to have that win rate above the industry? I think it's a two-way assessment. You're really looking for partnership. And one definition of a great partnership is, do you want to work together? And is your joint decision-making going to be better than your individual decision-making? We're in the people business. Money is the ultimate commodity. And so people really matter. And we really care about partnering with management teams and working collaboratively. This is why our resources group is 57 functional experts. So men and women whose job it is to help the men and women at the companies do things. And some of these things don't really obviously create EBITDA. Investors' eyes don't light up. So putting in new ERP systems is one of these things. But if you think about it, any company we invest in has IT systems that work and great IT leaders who are running them. But since a company only puts in an ERP system every seven to 12 years, no IT leader is ever expert at putting in ERP systems. So every time that happens, and we used to preside over this in the early years of the firm, the near death experiences when you change an ERP system, where like the IT vendor says the computer system works, and I'm sure it does. But if the management team and the people don't know how to use the computer system, you can't ship product. These are near death experiences. So this was a blinding flash of the obvious, hey, we should have someone at American Securities who puts in ERP systems and we do it like basically two companies a year every year and we're expert at that. That's risk reducing and, and wonderful. Of the 57 people, 12 are in ops and nine of those ops people are in purchasing. And we've taken out 40 to 60 plus million a year in cost alongside our management partners in companies for the last three years. This year, our target is 96 million. That's not overhead that's not efficiency, that's just purchasing cost. So there are things that we can bring to companies. And so this partnership mentality and being better together allows for, for shared success, which is our goal and long-term relationships. One of the great joys is not only learning about new businesses and new industries, but the people in them. And there are CEOs and other management team members from our first fund, which we raised in 1994, who are still investors in all of our partnerships and still people that I see in different cities on weekends, like for fun, like we are friends. And that's a great joy of the business, honestly. What have been your biggest lessons learned from this deal? I wouldn't say biggest, but this deal allowed us to demonstrate a lot of what we say we do when we talk to a management team to pitch us as a good partner. Looking at was basically a consumer product company, if you will, whey protein from an industrial lens and looking at the supply chain and the distribution chain and ways we could change that. It allowed us to utilize our resources group, particularly our office, 
in Shanghai, which helped create new customers, helped improve dramatically our international sales and margins on those sales, and our operating people to create some of the operating efficiencies in co-manufacturing and other things. And on our investment team, continuous focus throughout amazing relationship development building with Dave Lenzmeyer and his team and creativity in exit, willing to do some things like, hey, we'll stay and we love the business. But if you want to take us out, that's great too. We'll give you the chance to do that, the incentive to do that. But if not, we're happy to, to be a rollover investor. So a lot of those things, and of course, the diligence to see this from that lens and validate it enough, and then ultimately prove that we were right in what we saw and our capabilities to make it happen. Michael, one last question for you. What's your favorite aspect of private equity? I like all of the stuff. I've always loved the work, which is, I think, really important and every aspect of it. Make a baseball metaphor, there are at least nine positions on the field and no one's a gold glover at every one of them by definition, but you can't be making errors and you should enjoy your time in that position. So I love it. But the two things are people. You're meeting new people developing great relationships with the management teams and our investors and our lending partners and all the constituents. And we really care about being in a long-term successful relationship with all those people. So people first, and then learning every day, new companies, new industries. That's what kind of keeps it fun. We like to think that our investors enable us to get up every day and learn and grow. Well, Michael, thanks so much for sharing this single, double, whatever you want to call it, uh, success story. Well, thanks, Ted. It's great to see you as always. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com, where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time.